Welcome to Cannabis Science Today. This is the podcast where we unearth the cutting edge research on cannabis science that is typically only found in scientific journals and bring it out into the light. My name is Emily Feta, and I will be your guide as we converse with neuroscientists, psychologists, biologists, and physicians to learn more about cannabis as a plant and how it can be used as medicine. We're getting towards the end of season one, and we are going to celebrate by doing a special question and answer episode. So if you have any questions that came up for you during our past episodes or any of our upcoming ones that you would like the researchers or scientists to address, please email me at emily at diagonventures.com. That's emily at D-I-A-G-O-N-V-E-N-T-U-R-E-S dot com. Also, if you've enjoyed the show and you haven't left us a review on iTunes, please do so. You can also include your question in your review. And as long as it's a five-star review, your question will make the cut. This episode was made possible by Annie Nelson. Today, we are featuring Dr. John Vaught, founder and CEO of Front Range Biosciences. Front Range brings modernized biotech and agricultural techniques to cannabis, hemp, and coffee cultivators. John is an organic chemist by training and received his doctorate degree at the University of Colorado Boulder. This is an episode for people who are working in the industry or want to learn more about how cannabis and hemp are produced and the role biotechnology can play. We talk about innovation in the cannabis industry and the steps that Front Range is taking to emulate modern biotech and agricultural practices that are commonly used in the production of more traditional crops, but haven't quite made it to the hemp or the cannabis field quite yet. Mm, Great pun. We talk about Front Range's clean stock program. We talk about at what phase in the growth cycle of plants are contaminants and pathogens typically introduced. We talk about marker-assisted breeding, and we talk about what modern breeding techniques we might see evolve within this industry over the next few years. So this is a super interesting episode. If you are interested in the industry side of cannabis or hemp, stay tuned. And it's really interesting to learn about how a scientist set out to create a business within this industry. So you are an organic chemist by trade and you have a doctorate degree. So you spent a ton of time in school so tell me, what led you to start Front Range? About four years ago, um, I, I was watching the cannabis industry unfold here in Colorado, and I thought, gosh, what an incredible opportunity. So um, I started working on business plans, you know, how, how I could get the company off the ground. Mm-hmm. I'd been very fortunate to have some amazing mentors, mm-hmm. um, starting with my PhD advisor to some of my mentors at mm-hmm. Logic and, and Beacon and Velocity and, mm-hmm. um, and even, uh, you know, at places like the University of Colorado. And so um, I basically started uh, looking at different parts of the market and, and where it could have some impact. And mm-hmm. um, given my interest in farming and, and agriculture, I decided to focus uh, my efforts there. Mm-hmm. And uh, two and a half years ago, we raised the first money in the front range. And uh, that's when operations started. 
Great. So from your website, it says that Front Range focuses on providing clean stock, pathogen-free plants and seeds for hemp cultivators, which we'll get to more later because that's the focus of this podcast. But you also work with coffee cultivators. So I'm wondering what the reason is for this. Are there genetic similarities between the two crops or does it make sense from a commercial perspective to kind of diversify? Um, yeah, it's really the latter. Okay. You know, we came across a really interesting opportunity. So we started sequencing uh, the hemp genome to build a new reference Mm -hmm. uh, genome for hemp um, with Dario Cantu, uh, Professor Dario Cantu at the the University of California at Davis Uh um, almost two years ago now. And as part of that relationship, we got introduced to Jay Rusky and Fringe Coffee, Mm -hmm. which is a uh, unique uh, coffee breeder and producer in Southern California. They were working with Dario on uh, and some other folks at UC Davis mm-hmm. on similar things that we were doing in him, right? Okay. Sequencing the coffee genome mm-hmm. and, and building breeding markers and mm-hmm. things like that. And we, we started talking and, uh, you know, and, and it became apparent that there was a huge need for a clean stock program, just mm-hmm. like what we do in hemp mm-hmm. for coffee. Yeah. And, uh, so let me actually stop yeah. you right there. If you could explain what a clean stock program is. Sure. So a clean stock program has actually been around for, for a while in, mm-hmm. in other crops and other industries. And, you know, in the simplest form, it basically is, uh, in a way, it's like a GMP process, good manufacturing mm-hmm. process mm-hmm. for plants. Mm-hmm. It's how do you produce plants that have certain quality control standards, mm-hmm. certain regulated processes, mm-hmm. um, regulated internally by, yeah. your, by your own organization, that set standards for disease testing, mm-hmm. so certain types of assays or mm-hmm. tests to look for viruses, bacterial pathogens, fungal pathogens, mm-hmm. um, and then even pests like uh, you know thrips and mites and insects, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and basically having a set of protocols and guidelines that you follow very strictly that minimize your risk of outbreak of any one of those pathogens. Mm -hmm. And it's basically a series of proper testing at different points during the production process in the nursery, Uh whether it's parental lines that you're breeding and creating seed with, Mm -hmm. or whether it's your stock plants for your mother plants that you're Mm -hmm. gonna take cuttings from in a nursery where you're doing vegetative propagation. Mm -hmm. It it has applications in all of these. And the, the, the last piece of it is, it typically includes starting with a tissue culture program. Mm -hmm. So we use tissue culture, which is a way to produce plants in a laboratory setting in a very clean environment. It's Mm -hmm. sterile, basically. Uh, We use that um, as as the nucleus of the nursery. And then uh, the clean stock protocols and process includes the tissue culture lab as well as the greenhouse so that the plants that get released, and there's different terms within the clean stock program. But um, at the end of the day, the goal is that the plants that get released to growers Mm -hmm. or other nurseries, Mm -hmm. um, they have certain specifications Mm -hmm. about virus testing or other pathogen testing, Mm -hmm. and then also uh, performance metrics, you know, Mm -hmm. meaning that they're healthy and vigorous and and ready for production. Mm -hmm. So your clean stock program, it's not exclusively tissue cultures, it's tissue cultures and then mothering plants that can produce clones? So all of it works together, actually. So um, tissue culture is really just a tool. Uh Um, It's just a tool uh, just like IPM, Integrated Pest Management Programs, are a tool. It's a tool like, um, you know, next generation sequencing and marker-assisted breeding is Mm -hmm. a tool for breeding. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, it's, It's really just a tool and a technology that allows us to produce the highest quality plants in the greenhouse. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. um, the idea that tissue culture 
and the greenhouse are, are two separate things mm-hmm. at a clean stock program. Um, they're obviously separate facilities, but mm-hmm. they're, they're very closely mm-hmm. uh, linked. Okay. Yeah, so I work with a lot of cannabis cultivators mm-hmm. and through my consulting business, and I do think there's this widespread belief that tissue cultures are very finicky, and, and you know you need to have that kind of white white glove, very laboratory scientific approach, which is I'm sure you know isn't really the culture at, at a lot of grow houses here in Colorado mm-hmm. or across the country. So, so is that a myth? Is that um, are tissue cultures as finicky as people? Oh yeah, tissue culture is very hard. Okay. Um, tissue culture is—it's uh, a challenging technology to implement, especially mm-hmm. for a new crop. So when you look at, um, you know, and I'm very fortunate to have on my team folks like Dr. Cecilia Zapata, who, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pioneered uh, tissue culture production platforms and developed them in new crops for yeah. the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you look at, at building a clean stock program and building tissue culture production processes in a new crop, it can take years. Yeah. And we're very early into the cannabis process as an okay. industry even. I mean, it's only been technically legal, especially when you look at hemp for a mm-hmm. few years. And on the cannabis side, it's really only, you know, the scale that we're at now has really only happened in the last three to five years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, so anyway, so it's still very early in the process. So yeah, it is very challenging. Um, tissue culture is the most expensive part of any nursery. Okay. So it's, um, as I mentioned, it's the nucleus of the nursery. Um, you know, it's, it's not cheap. It, it takes uh, folks that, you know, it takes the right type of laboratory facilities. It mm-hmm. takes the right type of uh, people and resources to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also a big difference between using tissue culture as a production platform and then using tissue culture as a research tool. Mm-hmm. And that's another thing we can talk about at some point. But, um, you know, we're really focused on using it as a production tool. And as mm-hmm. I mentioned, it's, a, it's simply a technology uh, toolkit that we use as part of our nursery. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great point. And that's something that we can dive into more as we talk about some of these testing regulations and mm-hmm. how these programs might help. Um, but so I guess I guess at this point, my, my main question is, um, are there benefits beyond beyond kind of actually let me let me go back and let me um, let's talk about California for a moment because last year um, when California started introducing more testing regulations um, there was a report that came out that over 80% of facilities weren't weren't actually passing these tests that were testing for contaminants or testing for pesticides Mm -hmm. testing for pathogens mold mildew etc so do you think this clean stock program kind of solves that issue or is there a lot of possibility that the contaminants are introduced to the cannabis plant, maybe um, in the growing facility from humidity or something, or um, the contaminants could be introduced, uh, you know, during the drying and trimming process, which is happened, you know, mostly done completely by hand. So, yeah, how, how much of the how much of the problem does the clean stock program solve? Well, so I think the best way to look at it and the best way to answer the question is well, the, the short answer is yes, it's a solution. Mm-hmm. Is it a, a does it solve all the problems? No. Okay. Um, but the the longer answer is to take a step back and look at it from the perspective of other industries, other ingredients, other mm-hmm. crops. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, you look back and you look at it from a supply chain perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether you're you know manufacturing drugs or dietary supplements or nutraceuticals or, you know, other crops like herbs and things mm-hmm. that might go into similar applications, you know, extraction and and tinctures and things like that, right? Um, It's really about how do you get your crop from seed, you know, beginning of the plant, nursery, all the way to the end of the supply chain to the consumer, right? 
And when you look at it that way, you look at all the different parts of that supply chain in the different areas where there's risk for consumer safety, right? And, you know, whether it's it's pathogen risks in the greenhouse that lead to pesticide use or herbicide use, um, you know, that then contaminate the product or adulterate it and that carries through the supply chain and ends up in the consumer product, or whether it's at the end of the supply chain where you've got um, product that's, that's spoiled, right? And, and, you know, in cannabis, this could be something that has too much moisture and it gets sealed up and it molds, right? And then, and then that can make it into the supply chain. And, you know, you've got things um, that can be toxic to humans, right? So, uh, and that kind of, or food safety pathogens, for example, you mentioned trimming, right? So those are all different parts of the risk to the supply chain. And, you know, from my perspective and from, from our perspective as a company, you know, the only way to solve all of these problems is to have, you know, integrated solutions throughout the supply chain, right? Um, and really to take the approach that other industries have done to solve this. So this isn't a new problem, right? Yeah. I mean, nutraceuticals and drugs have been around forever. Right. And, you know, there's a reason we have strict regulations around some of these. And, and while the FDA, a lot of people may have issue with them, one of the things that they're tasked with is to make sure that, you know, regulations are in place for the supply chain mm-hmm. of drugs mm-hmm. so that consumers can be safe and that these these compounds or these these uh, formulations, whatever they might be, have a certain set of specifications that they have to go through during manufacturing so that you can demonstrate they're safe and and Of course, and yeah, efficacy. but in the instance that there has to be a recall for some yeah. reason, you can go back to the exact stage of the supply chain and remedy whatever happens. Exactly. Right? But I do think in cannabis right now, we don't have that luxury. If, no. If there's mildew in the plant, you know, it could have happened at any stage. It could have happened in the clone. It could have happened, you know, in the mothering plant. It could have happened in trimming. We really can't isolate the issue with that particular growing facility. Yeah, so, okay. it, so the clean stock program is our way to start clean, mm-hmm. and you start with with, you know, well-characterized, what we call true to type um, as part of the clean stock program. So that means that, you know, you've identified a phenotype, a specific set of characteristics for mm-hmm. cannabis. This could be things like cannabinoids or terpenes or um, certain yield profiles or growing characteristics. And that the plants that we release out of our nursery, whether they're from a young plant or a seed or a seedling or um, or a cutting or, you know, really nursery and production growing are two different skill sets, two different core competencies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in traditional agriculture, you very rarely see them together. Okay. Um, you generally, even if it's within the same company, yeah. you know, like a company like Driscoll's, for example, mm-hmm. they keep their nursery operations very separate from their production operations. Okay. Okay. And it's different teams and different people and very specific skill yeah. sets. Oh, that's fascinating because that really is a missing link in cannabis right now. Where it's exactly. all in the same warehouse. You have the mother plant, you have the nursery, the clones. Yeah. And, and then that's... you have your vegetative and your flowering plants and they're all under the same roof. Yes. So, and that's why I said it's really yeah. important to take a look at the whole supply chain mm-hmm. and really look at what's worked in other industries. Got and, it. you know, and then how do we model that in cannabis? And there's certainly yeah. opportunities to improve upon it, mm-hmm. right? Like you can... Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a big believer in innovation. That's that's kind of how I've made my career yeah. is around being innovative. And so, you know, you find lessons learned from, you know, other industries and then you, you might tweak some of those mm-hmm. or tweak some of those approaches, right, mm-hmm. for innovation in a new new crop or a new industry. Mm-hmm. And that's what we're, we're basically doing with cannabis. And you can always make improvements, right? Yeah, absolutely. You've never perfected anything. It's very yeah. rare. Um, there's always room for more improvement, right? Uh-huh. And so um, we're always looking for ways to 
improve what might be done in other crops so that we can apply it to this one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think that's so interesting, and it makes so much sense when you're looking at, um, you know, a traditional or legal agricultural industry and that these principles would be able to be applied to cannabis, but I'm wondering what the response has been from a lot of local cultivators, maybe here in Boulder or throughout Colorado, to this process, because um, I definitely have experienced cultivators, you know, who have been growing for years or decades, potentially, right. and do get very stuck in their um, in their own ways. And then even though this industry is evolving and scaling, um, what do you think that reaction is to saying, hey, let's apply these, these principles and these biotech techniques that have worked in other industries to this industry? In general, the, the response is good. Yeah. A lot of people are very interested in this. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the pace at which the industry is growing, uh, there's a lot of impatience you know there's a lot of pressure from investors and from just the market um, to grow and scale really quickly so you know reality is is to do these things right so proper gmp protocols throughout the supply chain proper clean stock protocols in the nursery Mm -hmm. proper cultivation techniques right you know as as we kind of started on a minute ago but even if you start with clean stock if the growers put pesticides or you know they have a dirty growing facility Mm -hmm. you know they're going to they're going to mitigate the, or they're going to they're going to cause problems, right? That yeah. that you know that, that can't be mitigated retroactively. You can't, you know. Right. So um, so it's 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 important that you know all of these protocols get get followed throughout the process, right? And some of them still need to be developed, right? They're still yeah. the jury's still out on the best way to mass, you know harvest for example and depending on what you're talking about out of a greenhouse or out of a field and and then dry and cure very quickly and, yeah. and safely and maximize the the potency that you might get out of certain cannabinoids or terpenes and things like that so um there's still uh still a, a lot of work to do but in general you know i think people really want to embrace these things um you know i think you're right there is a bit of a cultural um challenge um you know which you can't fault the folks that have have you know really been um, in many ways pioneers in this industry, right? right I mean, absolutely. you know, the guys that that you know faced prosecution and and federal raids, you know, from the government, but uh, still found ways to try and grow this plant. Um, you know, they were part of this black market, you know, culture, and um, unfortunately, given the pressure of you know the DEA and 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 other you know regulatory challenges that they had, right? Legal challenges, we should say, and and prison time, you know, they had to be, you know, nimble and do things in clandestine facilities. So they didn't have access to these tools and techniques. And so they kind of were forced into a corner and, you know, and it's unfortunate, but, um, you know, I think the industry's changing and and it's going to be for the better. We're going to get better access to patients, better access to consumers, mm-hmm. um, to a really interesting plant. And yeah. a really, you know, it's got, like I mentioned in the beginning, it's got potential across all these different industries. And I think growers and, and folks that come out of that world, you know, they can either embrace it or, you know, they're going to get, they are going to run into roadblocks and hurdles because mm-hmm. um, they're not going to be able to compete. The industry is going to scale very quickly. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, it's going to be about, you know, who can produce the most efficiently and right, safely right. and and with transparency, right? Mm-hmm. Consumers want to know what they're getting in their products, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they want to know if there's pesticides. They want to know if there's adulterants. They want to know. And so, you know, if it, it's going to fall on the producers and the growers and the manufacturers to put these standards in place for their companies if they want to be successful. Mm-hmm. And if they don't, you know, they're going to they could potentially, you know, face, face serious challenges. Um, 
you know, poor market response. Um, they're not going to be able to compete with the folks that do implement um, that level of quality so, yeah, control. Yeah, while we're talking about that, is this clean stock program accessible and affordable for kind of smaller growers, or is your target demographic more, you know, kind of these large scale commercial cultivators? That um, I mean, our, our target is definitely you know larger scale production, just yeah. because you know we're a we're a company and and you know. Um, you know, it's really all about scale at this yeah. point. However, you know, I'm a big believer uh, in, in, you know, small local agricultural businesses. Mm-hmm. I think it's, um, you know, I think it's in some ways the, the backbone of our, um, you know, of our, of our local food economy in a place like, you know, especially in places like Colorado mm-hmm. and in certain uh, regions in California. Um, you know, there's some challenges with the, with the big ag approach. So I am, I'm always supportive of that. Um, from a cost-effective standpoint, you know, we're not any, you know, we might be on the higher end uh, compared to other nurseries, mm-hmm. but we're not the most expensive and we're very competitive and, you know, we do have price breaks based on volume. Okay. So a large producer that's, you know, uh-huh. ordering a million plants a year, we're going to be able to give them a lower price point, right? right. And if they're doing a longer-term production type agreement... Mm-hmm. But, you know, it doesn't mean that the the smaller guys can't come and purchase a few thousand plants here and there. Um, yeah, they're going to be a little more expensive than the price point that, that would be for the other ones. But that's normal in any 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 product in any industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, and the reality is, is, is our prices are competitive in the marketplace, right? We don't want to, we can't price ourselves out of the market. Right, of course. And, you know, and so, um, so yeah, so, so uh-huh. we, we, we try to watch that and, and make sure that, it is accessible to uh, to growers, you know, no matter what their scale is. And the reality is, is for a small grower, um, you know, it's a decision they have to make. Is it more yeah, cost effective to run their own little nursery mm-hmm. or can they simply pick their plants up from the nursery? And I think, mm-hmm. you know, the jury's still out on that from a market perspective because really there's not a lot of quality nurseries. Right, right. So, so that hasn't even been an option. It, it hasn't really been an yeah. option. So it's hard for them to make a, a clear choice or a decision yeah, until yeah. it's been a few years and they've had a chance to try out a nursery or mm-hmm. even a couple of nurseries, right? Right, right. And you can't ship across state lines. Not for cannabis. Right. Yeah. Okay, so for hemp plants. Yeah, and, and we don't yeah. we don't actually have any active cannabis operations uh-huh. or, or relationships here in Colorado oh, okay. right now. Mm-hmm. Everything in Colorado for us is, is hemp. Is hemp um, okay. We do have some relationships with some licensed cannabis companies in California, okay. but um, but for us, you know, a big piece of our business right now is on the hemp side uh-huh. and then on the regulated cannabis side, we're working with California growers uh-huh. um, because we see that as, as the biggest market that's mm-hmm. set up for the nursery opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but in Colorado and Wisconsin, all of our operations are, are hemp. Mm-hmm. So beyond producing these pathogen-free clones, which I agree is crucial and mm-hmm. so important, are there any benefits to using this tissue culture technology for cannabis plants or hemp plants? Like, could this contribute to more genetically stable varieties or potentially uh, more stable levels of uh, THC or CBD? So it's an interesting question, um, and there's a, a bit of a misconception, and, and what I would say is probably some statements and conclusions that are not consistent with data um, at least from other plants, um, about tissue culture and its effect on cannabis. So, um, first and foremost, a proper clean stock program, which starts with tissue culture and includes proper processes in the greenhouse, we can generate plants that have higher vigor, higher quality, obviously, um, you know, make sure they're virus free. Yeah. 
you know, and, and minimize the stress that, that is on the plant from other pathogens, right? Mm -hmm. um, you start clean, it's easier to finish clean, right? Mm -hmm. If you start with a dirty product and you're trying to clean it yeah, up, that's yeah. always tough, whether you're talking about, you know, <laughs> you know laundry or plants, right? It's, it's you know, the, the dirtier you start with, the, the harder it is to get it clean. So, um, you know, so I think that's, that's certainly true. But um, in general, if done right, and I'll be honest, I mean, it's still early and, and a lot of tissue culture we've seen of cannabis, they're not producing healthy, vigorous plants, right? right. And it's a lot harder than everybody realizes. And, um, you know, that's one of the things we do is we, we have strict quality control processes and mm -hmm. plants that are looking stressed in the tissue culture lab, they're going to be stressed in the greenhouse. Right, right. So you've got to make sure that they're healthy and vigorous in the lab, and then you can get them into the greenhouse. Um, so... We certainly do that and we call plants that are, are not healthy and vigorous. In terms of genetic stability, uh, this is the big misconception that I, I started out with. Um, the reality is, is that plants are living things. This is biology. Mm -hmm. And plants mutate just like animals and other things mutate, right? right um, biology is a living, breathing um, system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mutations happen and they can happen for a lot of different reasons. They happen in the greenhouse to plants. Mm -hmm. They happen in the lab to plants. Mm -hmm. And the reality is, is that depending on, you know, tissue culture is a pretty broad term, right? There's a lot of specific techniques, uh, you know, whether you're talking about somatic embryos or micropropagation or, um, you know, callus induction and multiplication. And, you know, there's all these different parts of tissue culture. But if you look at it broadly and you look at, you know, any one of those, you know, there's a risk of mutation in tissue culture, just like there's a risk of, of vegetative cloning or propagation in the greenhouse. Mm -hmm. There's a risk of mutation. And, um, you know, in certain types of tissue culture, the risk of mutation is actually higher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, somatic embryos and callus, your risk of, of, of a mutation happening is, mm -hmm. is significantly higher. Mm -hmm. And that's supported by the data and the literature. Right. I, I'm not making that up. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and that's, you know, have we directly observed that in cannabis? You know, yes and no. Um, I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see more publications. But you, know, you can look at publications and in, in other crops and and plants and even model systems. And you know, there's mutation rates and under certain conditions, whether it's certain hormones or temperature or light. You know, those cause stressors to the plant, and that can induce you know epigenetic changes. And some of those can be lasting, and some of those can lead to direct mutations that change the plant. Right. So, um, for better or for worse. For or for worse. Mm -hmm. So the way I actually think about it is the way we control for that is through a clean stock program and true to type testing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we are always doing evaluations of plants. We have strict quality control standards. And if we notice something off, you know, we, we isolate that batch mm -hmm. and we go look at it. Mm -hmm. And if it's not performing according to spec, it gets mm -hmm. discarded. Mm -hmm. And that's how we keep our production supply chain clean. Mm -hmm. And with, um, plants that are staying what we call true to type, mm -hmm. but they're going to happen to everybody. And the right. only way to really prevent it, even if you don't have tissue culture mm -hmm. in your greenhouse, if you're running a nursery and you're doing cuttings, yeah. you should be looking at true to type. Mm -hmm. You know, you should be making sure that each batch of cuttings or each new mother stock plant, that it's still performing the way the original did right. and, right. and that you're documenting and testing for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great point. Um, so I want to switch gears and talk about breeding. And so breeding happens all the time. It, in the cannabis industry, and a lot of times it just happens in-house, and dispensaries are under a lot of pressure to differentiate themselves and come up with, like, the newest, hottest strain. I'm sure with 420 coming up, we're going to see a lot of new, like, 420 types of strains sold in dispensaries. 
So how do you differentiate uh, marker-assisted breeding or the breeding that you do through your company from kind of this in-house breeding that might happen at um, a cultivation facility down the street? Yeah, so I think this conversation or this this topic is very similar to the topic that we just had about yeah. nursery and using mm -hmm. tissue culture as part of your nursery and clean stock protocols and programs to produce higher quality plants. Mm -hmm. Once again, cannabis breeders have just not had access to modern breeding technology. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of them haven't had the opportunity to be formally trained in, in some of the approaches to traditional plant breeding mm -hmm. um, or even more advanced types of plant breeding like marker assisted breeding. Mm -hmm. So you know, they're, they're out of, they, their hands have been tied, right? And once again, they got forced into a corner and they did what, what they could do, which was, you know, generally what we see is, you know, they cross two plants, mm -hmm. they create a lot of seeds, they grow up those seeds, they identify one that has really unique traits or characteristics, and then they clone it, right? And they push that out as a new variety. Mm -hmm. And I think it works great for what you talked about, you know, the latest flavor of the month and, and you know, and, and that's really, that's great. But over time, you know, that doesn't really establish a foundation for a strong breeding program mm -hmm. that covers specific traits. Mm -hmm. And those traits could be cannabinoids or terpenes, or they mm -hmm. could be things like disease resistance or drought resistance, um, you know, or even growth structure, you know, plant morphology. Um, or when you start talking about large scale production outdoors in the case of hemp, yield mm -hmm. per acre, right? right, right. So, uh, you know, what we're trying to do is really combine the best techniques that are available today for plant breeding to create new plant varieties mm -hmm. and support that uh, both in the, the cannabis world, the high THC world, mm -hmm. as well as the, the hemp world, right? Yeah. In the low THC world, yeah, right? Yeah, let's dig into that, you know, the hemp world for a moment because, you know, with the passing of the farm bill, we're going to see hemp farms spring up all across the country. We're going to see them in Minnesota. We're going to see them in Florida. We're going to see them in North Carolina. So do you think it's important to be breeding certain types of hemp varieties to thrive in these different climates? You know, in Minnesota, where it's going to be cold versus Florida, which is more tropical and humid. Absolutely. So, you know, I think, you know, to, to summarize and tie those two questions and, and the answer together, you know, we're implementing technologies, you know, traditional selective plant breeding with uh, underlying genomic information and phenotypic information to develop marker sets for predictive breeding capabilities. Um, using uh, marker-assisted breeding approaches, basically, is, is how you would summarize that. And then tailoring that to plant varieties that grow in important producing regions mm -hmm. in the world, in the country. Uh -huh. So what grows well in a dry climate in, in Colorado mm -hmm. might be very different from what grows really well from a climate in Southern Florida mm -hmm. versus the Northeast Absolutely. versus South America. Mm -hmm. So it's really important, you know, as we lay the foundation for a strong breeding program that we're identifying, first and foremost, which traits are important in those regions. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there could be some type of, uh, you know, we've heard stories of, of a hemp borer um, in the Midwest, right? Mm -hmm. And it hasn't really shown up in what? borer. It's, uh, it's like a small insect that, oh, okay. uh, that bores into the, into, okay. the, into the plant. So, you know, there's, there's certain pests and pathogens that yeah. are only, only in certain climates. Right. So you want to have resistance to those mm -hmm. or, you know, techniques to deal with those mm -hmm. those pests in certain environments. Right. Uh -huh. um, you know, other environments, you know, could include temperature fluctuations. Right. Mm -hmm. So the ability to survive early frost 
um, yeah. or a late frost yeah. in the spring, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there's all these different uh, regional variations in climate and conditions that are important. So yeah, we absolutely are working on breeding towards those specific climates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've got our, our headquarters or our, our core breeding facility is an indoor facility here in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we also just announced uh, yesterday through a press release our, uh, our breeding or an arm of our breeding program at the CRAG IRTA, which is the Spanish Institute for Agricultural and Crop Genomics mm-hmm. in Barcelona, Spain, oh, cool. or just outside of Barcelona. So we've got a, they've got labs and greenhouses and they've you know been doing plant breeding projects for mm-hmm. you know academic and industrial institutions for for many decades and you know so that's why we decided to to run an arm of our program there mm-hmm. and you know it it is going to leverage you know bringing in germplasm from around the world that performs in these different environments mm-hmm. to crossbreed and then create new varieties that can work well in, in specific environments with certain traits that we're after, right? Mm-hmm. So minor cannabinoids, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about THC and CBD, but there's a hundred others right, that are right, really interesting we don't yeah. know much about yet. Um, some of them are already starting to make, make, in, make it into the public domain, things mm-hmm. like CBG and CBC and um, CBDV or THCV. And there's, so, you know, there's all these other cannabinoids, but then there's things like disease resistance and, you know, mm-hmm. and powdery mildew resistance or mm-hmm. uh, the ability to survive, you know, really hot, dry days in the middle of summer yeah, if you're outdoors yeah. in California or Colorado. So um, these are all things that we're, we're, we're collectively breeding for. Mm-hmm. And to summarize, you know, our goal is, is what we're doing is building a, a foundation uh, mm-hmm. for a breeding platform and really building out that breeding platform. Mm-hmm. You know, the first step was was doing some of the genomic sequencing work that, that we've done at UC Davis. Mm-hmm. You know, now we've got the, the uh, marker assisted breeding or marker development program at the CRAG. We've got our breeding program here and we're working on uh, creating new seed varieties that are stable in seed form um, and even feminized seed varieties that produce only female plants because that's really important in cannabis. Um, So, yeah, and then we're trying to leverage these, you, you know, these, these, really great technologies that have evolved in the last you know decade or even 20 years mm-hmm. um, like next generation sequencing and bioinformatics and mm-hmm. um, you know the ability to really improve the efficiency of breeding and the outcomes right mm-hmm. which right. at the end of the day our number one goal is a company to be a solutions provider mm-hmm. for growers mm-hmm. right at the end of the day that's how we get measured is mm-hmm. are our plants as good as they can be are they healthy do the seed varieties produce the intended outcomes? Mm-hmm. Can growers rely on us that we test our seed, that we right. test our plants, and then we're not just giving them something that's untested, right? Mm-hmm. That's really, really important for growers. And as this industry scales, you know, if a farmer is going to grow a thousand acres of a crop, mm-hmm. they can't risk their entire livelihood mm-hmm. on that crop failing. And if somebody sells them seed that hasn't been tested or properly validated Mm -hmm. or sells them clones that haven't been tested or properly validated, Mm -hmm. you know, they could be setting that farmer up for catastrophic failure. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we're really keen on. And that's how we view plant breeding and and our seed development and and marker assisted breeding Mm -hmm. is we really want to build a robust breeding process that leads to good products for our growers. Yeah, that's super interesting, and I do think over the past couple of years, cultivators have really focused on breeding for really high levels of THC, because that's been what's been most popular in the market, and I wonder what effects breeding for high THC has had on the quality of the plant. That's an amazing yeah. point, and I think it's one that we, rec- you know, when you look at it, 
from a breeding perspective, the only traits that have really been bred into cannabis yeah. for the last 30 or 40 years mm -hmm. is that they produce high THC, yeah. that they smell good, right, right. and that they grow really well in a closet or a garage yeah. or a warehouse. Yeah, and I, I've heard, yeah, exactly. And I've heard reports about um, like Gorilla Glue Number Four, which has you know really good high levels of THC, but the stalk can barely hold itself up. So it's right. it's not a great plant to grow commercially. Right. So I I think it's really it'll be really fascinating to see how this evolves and, and you know how how the plant can thrive when we start breeding for things beyond just THC and CBD. Yep. Um, so let's finish with two fun questions that are related to one another. But I'm wondering, what are your goals for research going forward? And if you had an unlimited budget, you didn't have to consider either the commercial restraints of running a business, what would you like to know about um, cannabis or hemp? <laughs> That's a, a fun question. Um, I think it's it's so early. In some ways, from my perspective, it's it's kind of like flying to the moon for the first time. Um, there's some other great researchers out there that are doing work, you know, whether it's at the University of Colorado at Boulder or Colorado State or Toronto or some of these other companies that are doing genomics research um, that people frequently mention uh, when, they, when they mention us. You know, there's a lot of good scientists out there doing great work, but it's still so, so early. And so, you know, we try to view it that way and and say, all right, well, what are the key steps to get to where we want to be, right? Mm -hmm. And I think for us, at the end of the day, you know, as I mentioned earlier, our number one goal is to produce the highest quality plants for growers mm -hmm. that really help this industry scale. Yeah. Whether it's small cottage farmers mm -hmm. or or small, you know, boutique farmers or you know, a mom and pop shop that mm -hmm. you know is running a small business or the large scale production farms, right? Mm -hmm. We really. We want varieties that will work in each of those environments. So I think, you know, the and this plant is really complex biologically. Right. So it's a little chemical factory. It produces yeah. all these unique compounds. And it also has this really unique feature about, you know, and, and don't want to put this out the wrong way, but the sexual nature of how the plant breeds, right? Yeah. So the male-female differentiation between the plants mm -hmm. and which traits are carried along by females and which trait are carried along by males mm -hmm. and then how to get those traits commercially available, right? Mm -hmm. If you only want female plants for flower and oil production, right? How do you maximize that, right? And and so unlocking some of the mystery around how to create stable feminized seed, mm -hmm. um, you know, I think that's really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I think also for us, you know, the holy grail is how can we produce something that has high cannabinoids and high terpenes mm -hmm. in the flower, but also goes to seed or grain so that you no longer have this need for female-only plants? Mm -hmm. And a, a farmer could actually get two or three products or ingredients out of its crop mm -hmm. or out of their crop. And so, you know, if you could harvest for flour and get your oils, which are right now the highest margin product, mm -hmm. and then you could grow you can harvest your grain mm -hmm. and sell it to, you know, plant-based protein, mm -hmm. uh, you know, ingredient companies, mm -hmm. and then even be able to capitalize on the leftover fiber mm -hmm. and put that towards plastics or industrial building materials. You know, there's interesting things like um, fiberboard and pressed wood that can replace a lot more of our less environmentally friendly mm -hmm. um, building materials, yeah, right? Absolutely. So, you know, so from my perspective, I guess... That's the most exciting thing is oh. how can we turn this crop into this, you know, amazing, you know, world changing crop that mm -hmm. can 
help folks not only on the, the you know, nutraceutical or even pharmaceutical side, but solve mm-hmm. medical issues, but also help support good nutrition. You know, it's got a balanced amino acid profile, balanced fatty acid profile in the mm-hmm. grain. You know, it's a great food source. And then also help it, help it support things which are killing our planet, like mm-hmm. plastics, right. you know, and, and building materials, right? Mm-hmm. If we could have a, re- a regenerative approach to, you know, plastics and building materials, you know, that would change, would change a lot of things for yeah, our, for our yeah, world. Absolutely. It could create jobs. Anyway, so, so I guess that's, that's what I'm most excited about is how do we tie all these pieces together so that at the end of the day, this isn't just a cool crop that, you know, people get to smoke and yeah, it's fun, you know, like alcohol, Mm -hmm. but it actually is a, is an, has an impact on the world, right? Right, right. From everything from agriculture um, and, and big ag and biotech practices Mm -hmm. all the way down to, uh, you know, building materials Mm -hmm. and renewable plastics and things like that. Mm So um, I don't know if that was a long winded answer. Yeah, no, I think that was a great answer. (laughs) And I think, yeah, it sounds like the goal is really to understand the full potential of this plan. Absolutely. And I think we're at a very primitive stage of understanding you know, what it could possibly be. So Yeah, we want to unlock yeah. all that potential. Right, right. And I think you, you bring up so many interesting scientific points from a biological perspective, from a, from a chemical perspective, mm-hmm. what, what is hidden, you know, within this plant. So, um, yeah, I think that's a great place to stop. So thank you so much for uh, sharing all of your time and your wisdom with us. I, um, I'm really excited to share this with our listeners. Yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes. It will help other people find us. Cannabis Science Today is so generously supported by the Agricultural Genomics Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit dedicated to educating the public on scientific research findings on cannabis. If you're interested in donating to this cause or sponsoring an episode of this podcast, where we research a scientific research question or theme of your choice, please contact us through agriculturalgenomics.org.